I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were facing some pretty serious consequences and so you got nervous and you started talking and then everything that you were saying wasn't helpful. I don't know if that's ever happened to anybody. Or uh, maybe you were uh, in the presence of an authority and you're, and you're just thinking like this is not going to end well and the more you're talking the more you're convincing yourself this is not going to end well. I remember being, uh, I was a teenager walking home from high school with a buddy of mine and there was this uh, little guy on the street coming the same coming towards us on the sidewalk, and as we were coming towards each other, um, the little guy didn't, didn't get off the sidewalk, we were just getting closer and closer, and I don't know what came over my friend that I was walking with, he was a really nice guy, he wasn't a bully by any stretch of the imagination, like super kind guy, but for some reason, I don't know what came over him, sometimes you just do foolish things, <clears throat> and he leaned over and he kind of, like, kind of gave him a bit of a body check, like he was kidding, he was like, hey buddy, and he body checked this kid that we didn't know. And the kid fell down, the kid got up, he started crying, he ran away, we felt terrible. My friend was like, oh my goodness, what, why did I do that? What was I thinking? And about two seconds later, you just heard these footsteps and we turned around and here was this father sprinting down the street. And by the time I turn around and get, get a word out of my mouth, my friend is on the grass. This dad is on top of him. He is yelling to his other brother, call the cops, call the cops. And there we are standing there on this lawn, like what is happening? A few minutes later, a police cruiser comes whipping around the corner. The officer gets out. He just looks at my friend and I and he goes, you, you, get in the back of the car. No questions asked. We're sitting in the back of the car while he's talking to this dad. The officer gets in the car, asks us for our side of the story, and we just start rambling. I mean, we're just like, this is ending so badly. And amazingly, it didn't end badly. We were expecting to, the crushing law, and we got some grace. And the officer opened the door, and he let us walk home. And he understood it. You know, it was, it was a terrifying moment. Our text today is Mark chapter 9. And this is a very famous passage where Jesus goes up a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and there's a transfiguration where they see Christ with Elijah and Moses, Elijah and Moses. And in this moment, in the presence of God, Peter has this fear come over him, and the other disciples have this fear come over him, like, this is not going to end well. This is going to end badly. So Peter just starts rambling. And shockingly, it doesn't end badly. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could ever bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say. They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, and they questioned what this rising from the dead could mean. 
And they asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it's written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes were arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him, and they greeted him. And they asked him, what are you arguing with the others about? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood, and it's often cast him into the fire and the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. Most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out except by prayer. This is God's word. Now, in this divine event, God's presence is coming on a mountain, and it recalls that there was another time in Israel's history when God came down on a mountain. During the Exodus, God came down on a mountain in a cloud, and everyone was afraid. And here, God comes down on a mountain in a cloud, and everyone's afraid. During the Exodus, Moses begged to see God's glory, but he was denied because No sinful person could survive the presence of God's glory. And here, Peter, James, and John, they see God's glory, even though they're sinful. And somehow they survive God's glory. Moses couldn't handle God's glory, so like the moon reflects the sun, Moses reflected God's glory. But Jesus doesn't merely reflect God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. And so when you get to verse 5, Peter's scared, they're all scared, Peter doesn't understand what's going on, so he does what most of us do, we can relate. He just starts talking nervously. And, and as he's nervously running his mouth, the solution that he comes up with isn't even close. Right? And you and I have done this at times in our lives where we've nervously run our mouths and then the solutions we come up with are not even close. Before I planted this church, I remember an organization I worked for, we had a, a national board meeting. One of the new VPs was making a presentation and as we were there, um, the, the rest of, there's a, uh, four of us that were VPs for this organization and as this, this one uh, 
gentleman, the new guy, was giving his presentation. It was not going well. It was going badly. They were asking him questions. Those in authority asked him questions. It was going badly. He started running his mouth. It was, it was going really badly. So in, in great support of him, the rest of us started texting memes to his phone of all these uh, people doing different face plants. So after he sat down, he could you know, enjoy his dismal failure. We were really supportive of him. But this is what happens. This is what happens when you just start talking. And you don't know what's going on. This is what Peter's doing. Now, Peter, Peter uh, you, know, gets a, you know, gets a bum rap because all of his failures are recorded for us to, to read and to, uh, to learn from, which is fantastic. Um, but, you know, there is, there is actually a reason why Peter said what he said, and we're going to get to that in a second. But can you imagine being one of the disciples? You're scared, too. Can you imagine being Peter or John in this moment? You're scared. You're terrified. You don't know what's happening. You think you're going to die. Because it's the glory of God. And all throughout Israel's history, everybody knows. Everybody knows. Nobody can stand in the glory of God. And now you're seeing the glory of God. And here's Peter. He just starts talking. And um, what's interesting is God interrupts Peter. Some of your translations even say, and while Peter was still speaking. So it's like Peter's like, ah, he's searching for answers. And right in the middle of his his ill-informed speech, God just starts talking. And again, I think we can relate as we consider how many times we're going through things in our lives and we just nervously start, we're not really praying so much as we are worrying in God's direction. And uh, it's like, you know, by his grace, God, God just uh, starts talking. Like, you know, listen, um, close your mouth and things are going to go much better for you. And so what's going on here is uh, Peter says, hey, it's good that we're here. We should build three tents. And he's not talking about going camping for the kids that are in the service here. Uh, the word tent in the Greek is skenos, which is the Greek word for tabernacle. So what's going on is Peter, Peter sees what's happening. He doesn't really understand what's happening. But he's thinking, we're all going to die unless we've got a tabernacle and a priest and a sacrifice. We're all dead. So Peter says, hey, this is great that we're here. We should build uh, three tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while Peter just starts you know, laying out his great building program, uh, he's, he's thinking... According to the law. That's what's happening here. We need a temple, we need a priest, we need a sacrifice, or we're all going to die because that's the law. Peter's trying to figure out what God is going to do next according to the law. But what God was going to do next was according to grace. So Peter's thinking according to the law, but what God was going to do was according to grace. And the reason why they didn't die in that moment is because Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus had come as the great high priest. Jesus is standing there as the ultimate sacrifice. And that's the gospel. And so on this mountain, when you consider you know, back through Israel's history, on the mountain, Moses was hidden from God's presence because there's an infinite gap between sinful man and a holy God. But the disciples could stand in God's presence because Jesus bridges the infinite gap. Between sinful man and a holy God. And so in verse 8, if you look at verse 8, Moses and Elijah, they disappear. Only Jesus is left. What does this mean? Well, Moses represents the law of God. Elijah represents the prophets of God. And only Jesus remains, which means he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. Jesus is God's final word. See, God's first word was the law, and the law says we're all guilty. But God's final word is the gospel. 
which says that in Christ you're not guilty. The law says you can't stand before God, but the gospel says in Christ you can stand before God. And that's why the disciples lived to tell about it. God's first word was the law, which says that because of sin, all life ends in death. But God's final word is the gospel, which Jesus preached to them before they went, before they went up the mountain, which says that in him, eternal life will come from death, though they didn't understand that. So Jesus bridges this infinite gap between your sin and God's holiness. And Jesus came to be your holiness, so that united to him by grace and through faith, you and I stand like the disciples were able to stand, in borrowed holiness. Jesus gives what Moses could not give. Jesus gives what Elijah could not give. Jesus gives what nobody could give. Which is why John chapter 1 and verse 17 says, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so instead of being consumed by the presence of God, because of Jesus, they were welcomed by God. And instead of you and I being condemned by God because of Jesus you and I are welcomed by God we are adopted by God we are loved by God we are being changed even as we sit here together church by God by his great grace when he begins he will complete he will do it by his grace and you know when Jesus was speaking about his suffering and his death they couldn't they couldn't grasp it they couldn't understand it it was hard for them to swallow because they were they were all posturing themselves for triumph Jesus kept talking like posturing them for tragedy. And what nobody expected was that Jesus was going to bring triumph from tragedy. What nobody expected was that through death, Jesus ensured that one day he's going to end all tragedy. You know, this week, my family was at a funeral for Colton Kipfer and a friend of ours and and uh, the Kipfer family, many of you guys know, and that was a long battle for Colton. And um, the only thing that will give you hope when you're at a funeral, many of you have been to funerals, but the only thing that gives you hope as you're, you're staring at the unavoidable reality of death at a funeral is that in Christ, a day is coming when death is going to have a funeral. You see, in and, and that is the triumph through tragedy that the disciples couldn't grasp. That is the triumph through tragedy that you and I have a hard time being able to, to, to grasp. Because when we're in the middle of that, when we're in the middle of that tragedy, we can't, we can't fathom how God is with us. And that in the end, his heart is, is that just as the pattern of Christ's life was triumph through tragedy, that the pattern of your life and my life is triumph through tragedy. And so this passage, it reiterates reality. And what it, rea- what it reiterates is Moses vanishes and Elijah vanishes and Christ alone is standing and the disciples are alive after being in the very presence of God. What it reiterates is that Jesus is not a needy king. He doesn't need us to worship him so he can feel validated. He's a gracious king who asks for your trust so that your soul can be liberated. You know, there's a philosopher, writer, was an atheist, turned, turned believer in Christ, named C.S. Lewis, for those of you who may be new to church this morning. And C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, after he had made this journey from atheism to belief in Christ. And in his book, Problem of Pain, this is what he writes. 
A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Jesus is not a needy king that needs our worship. He's a gracious king that calls us to worship so that he can liberate our hearts. And so in verses 9 through 13, um, he tells them, you know, not to tell anybody about this. And why would he do that? Well, because nobody would believe it, quite frankly. So he, was, he wants them to wait until, until after the resurrection so that, they can, so that they can share that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, that Christ is the fulfillment of the prophets, that the law was God's first word, but Christ is God's final word, and they're to wait to do that. And Jesus explains that they already had a prophet, that Elijah, you know, Elijah had returned, uh, in, uh, you know, speaking in an in illustration of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist came just as Elijah came, and they did away with John the Baptist just like they did away with, with Elijah. And so that's what that, those verses mean there in 9 through, 9 through 13. And so he, Jesus says, you know, just wait until after the resurrection, and then you share this. And so when you get to um, verse 7, I want you to notice that when God speaks, when God interrupts Peter and God speaks, I want you to notice what God, what God says here. God's words don't offer any new information to dazzle the disciples' minds. His words are given to captivate and reanimate their hearts. God's words were, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's it. Not new, they weren't, they're not given new information. He's calling, he's calling them to be captivated by something. And this is important for us to understand what's, what's uh, going on here. It's so beautiful. See, it's one thing it's one thing to be instructed intellectually about God's plan of saving grace. And then it's another thing to stand in God's presence and not die and experience saving grace. That's what this is. The disciples had been being told by Jesus. He told them on the way up the mountain and they still didn't get it. After I die and rise again. They're not understanding. They're, you can't intellectualize over saving grace. Though the gospel does stimulate our minds. It also captivates our hearts. It's both. And so God gives them these words to do this. So it's one thing to be instructed intellectually about God's plan for saving grace. It's another thing to stand in the implications of, state, of, of saving grace. It's one thing to be told, you know, that a, that a baby is adorable. It's another thing to hold the baby, behold the baby, and say, wow, this baby is adorable. It's one thing to be told, hey, you know, the stars, if you go out on a clear night sky in a prairie province where there's no cities around and stare into the cosmos, you'll be blown away by the heavenlies. It's one thing to be told that. And then it's another thing to go out in a prairie province on a clear sky where there's no cities around and stare into the cosmos and see how small we are in the universe of this great God who spun it into existence. It's one thing to be told something. And then it's another thing to stand in it and behold it and be amazed by it. It's one thing to be told, this musician is brilliant. And it's another thing to get a ticket, go to a concert, sit in the room, have the music come, fill your ears, fill your soul, have the hair stand up on the back of your neck because you're blown away by the brilliance of their musicianship. It's one thing to be told something. It's another thing to sit in the presence of it. 
It's one thing to be told, this is the greatest food in the city. You got to try this place. You know, Susan is a food evangelist. When Susan finds a place that she likes, everybody's got to go there. Everybody's got to try this dish. She's an evangelist for food that she enjoys. It's one thing to be told something. And then it's another thing to sit there and taste it. Which is precisely what the scriptures call us and invite us to do. Psalm chapter 34 and verse 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. The disciples are on the mountain tasting and seeing grace because they're standing in the presence of God, which nobody in history could ever do. The priests had to go through these long, rigorous cleansing processes. You read the Old Testament so they could be in the presence of God, atone for their sin, atone for the sin of people. Long process. They had a rope tied to their ankles so they went into the Holy of Holies. If they weren't pure, they could drag the dead body out. Serious stuff. What do the disciples do? They're marching up a mountain. They're filthy, dirty. No cleansing practices. Not following the law. Nothing is going on. They're not doing anything that should warrant that they should be able to survive the presence of God. But they do. Grace. Which is why you and I gather Sunday in and Sunday out. Because it's one thing for us to know in our minds that God is good. It's one thing for us to know in our minds that His grace is good and that He is with us in our suffering. He to know these things. But as we gather together and we sing His praises and His word is sung into our hearts and Christ is preached into our souls and then we eat and we drink and our mouths are filled with the goodness of His grace that we, like the disciples, experience His goodness. We taste and see that He's good. We leave this place like they left the mountain with, with this glorious and good encounter with God's goodness and saving grace. It's one thing to know intellectually that God's great and the disciples, they knew firsthand after they walked after that, off that mountain that Jesus was great because they lived to tell the tale. And I, by the way, just to be clear, when I'm talking about experiencing God here, which I am, because this, this text is talking about that. This is like a corporate worship experience. It's not a private mystical experience Peter is having. It's Peter, James, and John together in the presence of God. It's corporate worship. So when I talk about uh, this experience, I'm not talking about some sort of a sporadic mystical experience with God. I'm talking about the ongoing, life-changing, renewing power of God by the means that he gave through the bread and the cup and the preaching of Christ. I'm talking about being in what Christ gave as his church where we can uh, enjoy this life-changing and renewing power as we come together like Peter, James, and John came together. We come together and we enjoy the goodness of God and, and, and uh, in worship to him because they could only stand because of that grace. Now, What's interesting is that when you, when you consider what, what Peter thought was happening and then what did happen, is that really Peter was focused on surviving God's presence. That's what the whole skenas in the Greek, oh, it's good that we're here, we should build three tents, three skenas, three tabernacles. What is Peter, what is he thinking about? Surviving God's presence. But what was God actually doing? Empowering them to leave as ministers from God's presence. If you are motivated by the law, fixated by the law, consumed with the law, all you're going to think is, how do I not die? How do I not get in trouble? How do I keep God happy with me? When you're motivated by the law, all you're thinking is, how do I not die? When you're motivated by grace, your heart is liberated because that's taken care of in Jesus, and you're thinking, how do I now live? Which is what happened, because they went right down from the mountain. They didn't stay up there. They went down, and they went immediately into this uh, ministry where they had to confront 
the challenging reality of life in a broken world. That's what happened when they encounter this poor boy who's being tormented by the Spirit, right? They leave that mountain and they're dealing with the challenging reality of life in a broken world. You and I leave the church service every Sunday, globally around the world today, Christ's church meets and we gather and we worship and we celebrate grace and we stand in God's presence because of Jesus and then we leave and we have to face the confronting reality of life in a broken world. Now, when you get to uh, verse 17, Mark records that this poor boy was at the mercy of demonic activity. Now, it's, it's very rare, of course, to encounter the powers of darkness manifesting in that way today. However, Ephesians 6 is very clear that the powers of darkness are at work in the world every day. And so, when Jesus gets there, the disciples who weren't on the mountain, they're attempting this exorcism without prayer. And they're overestimating their ability to overcome the powers of darkness and suffering in the world. And they're underestimating the power of darkness and suffering in the world. And there's only one person there confessing that they're powerless against the darkness and the suffering in the world. It's the father of the young tormented boy. Just think about that for a second. The disciples are trying a prayerless exorcism. How do you spell self-reliance? You know, How do you spell... I don't need, it's okay, God, I got this. It's like you're going to cast out a demon without prayer. Okay, that's what they're doing. So they are overconfident. The scribes are arguing with them. So you've got the disciples overconfident, the religious community is overconfident, and here's this father who is honestly helpless. And when you get to verses 22 to 24, look closely at the exchange that the father has with Jesus. The father asks Jesus, can you do anything? Jesus says, can I do anything? And the word, and, and the word uh, in the Greek, can you do anything? It's, it's duna, which is power. And the, the father is saying, and the father is saying, do you have the power and authority to do anything? If you can, if you have the power and authority to do anything, please have compassion. And so the father says, can you do anything? Jesus says, can I do anything? All things are possible if you believe I can do anything. Do you believe that I can do anything? And the Father's answer is, I believe, help my unbelief. What a fantastic answer. Look at this. I believe, help my unbelief. I'm a mixed bag, Jesus. Yes, I'm full of belief and unbelief. I'm full of faith and fear. I trust you, but I also don't. I'm not sure. Do you see this honesty as he blurts out his helplessness before Christ? What does Jesus do for this wavering, weak man of faith? Do you believe I can do anything? I believe. Help me unbelief. What is Jesus' response to this? What does he do for the weak, wavering father? It's important because how Jesus relates to this weak, wavering man is how he relates to all of us weak, wavering people. Jesus responds to the confession of weakness with healing, restoring power of his grace. Not because this father demonstrated faith-filled righteousness, but because this father demonstrated honest, repentant helplessness. He was honest, he was repentant, he was helpless. Jesus moves in grace. It's astounding. I believe, help my unbelief. I'm wrestling with doubts. I can't meet your requirements. 
Anything is possible if you believe I can do anything. Do you believe I can do anything? I believe I help my unbelief. I can't meet your requirements. Jesus sets the bar, and his response is, I don't, I don't meet that bar. And that is saving faith. That is the gospel. Jesus sets the bar, the man confesses. I don't meet that bar. Jesus moves in grace. Do you see this? It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's powerful. I love it. On the mountain, in the presence of God, God empowered Jesus for ministry as light in the darkness. On the mountain, in the presence of God, God is empowering the disciples for ministry as lights in the darkness. And here, in worship, in the presence of God, God empowers us for ministry to go into the city as ministers of light in the darkness. We rest in the grace of God. We are being renewed by the presence of God. We are called to share the gospel so that others will find the grace of God. Not because of our ability, but because of Christ's sufficiency. He will do it through you, through I, in this city. We believe. Help our unbelief, Jesus. Let's pray.